0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education, and I'm pleased to be here today with Sarah Drummond, the founding dean of Andover Newton Seminary at Yale Divinity School. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. Sarah, could you start by just telling us a little bit about your own background, where where you grew up um, and, and sort of where you went to school?
1: Sure, David. I grew up in a small town called Suffield, Connecticut, which is in the northernmost part of the state of Connecticut. And I grew up in a house that was adjacent to an independent boarding school called Suffield Academy. On the other side of that boarding school was the church that I attended growing up. So I spent my early years living very much um, in the neighborhood of a campus. And a church. When I graduated from Suffield Academy, I came to Yale University to be an undergraduate student at Yale College. And at Yale, I was was really involved in campus ministry and student government in Saybrook College, which was my undergraduate residential college. And I loved Yale. I was the booster joiner of the century. I loved living on campus and Yale being an intensely residential setting was really just right for me. I uh, majored in ethics, politics and economics, which is an interdisciplinary social sciences degree. And I discovered through that work, a real love for policymaking and thinking things all the way through, including their economic, political and and, um, ethical ramifications. I wanted to go from college to get my next degree in life's meaning and purpose, but I wasn't exactly sure where I could find a degree in life's meaning and purpose. All I really wanted to do was stay up till four o'clock in the morning talking about why in the world we're here. So I took some time to explore law school and ultimately found myself gravitating to divinity school because the law schools that I was investigating were really focused on teaching people how to be lawyers. you know, How dare they? But that wasn't really what I was hoping for. And Divinity School was a place for me to look into the really big questions. So after I graduated from Yale College, I took a year to serve Habitat for Humanity in its international headquarters location in Americus, Georgia. And I worked in their campus ministry division and then after that one year mission stint, I, um, I went to work and school at Harvard Divinity School. I earned a Master of Divinity at Harvard Divinity School, but really most of my time and energy were dedicated to the college community at Harvard. I worked at Memorial Church, which is the university chapel at Harvard. And I served the first year student's de- student dean's office, as a residential hall academic and um, academic and life advisor. So even though I was enrolled at the Divinity School, my attention really was on the college years. I, uh, during those was years- Was Reverend Gomes still- He was, he was my supervisor.
0: I was just that, asking- what-
1: Yeah, uh, Peter Gomes was my supervisor and I worked for him for six years. And we actually stayed very close until he died five years ago. And I was um, affiliated with Memorial Church until he until he died. Um, a very important mentor in my life. Um, smartest, funniest, um, maybe meanest, but in the best possible way person that I could have had a chance to learn from. Um, and and I, I miss him every day. So I worked for Harvard. Um, both in the church and in residence life, and in academic advising life, and it was really through that experience, um, that blending of um, college chaplaincy, college administrative leadership, and the study of theology, that it, it became really clear to me that I was never going to go far from that intersection. So since that time, I um, I I graduated. I became ordained in the United Church of Christ. That was 1997. I served as a campus minister and got my PhD at the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee, which is a place where I had a chance to actually go to school and study educational administration from a researcher's point of view. And it was toward the end of my doctoral program at UW-Milwaukee, again, where I was also the campus minister for Protestant students at the university, that I stumbled upon an opportunity to have for the first time in my life, just one job, namely the job of being a faculty member at Andover Newton Theological School, teaching administrative leadership, directing the supervised ministry kind of internship program and being part of a a theological school for the first time. That was in 2005 and I never left. The school moved around, but I haven't.
0: That, that's great. And, and when you made that decision to go the doctoral route in, in educational administration, did you weigh that versus doctorate within a doctor of divinity? And how did you sort of decide what was best for you?
1: The notion of getting a PhD was something that always seemed to me a bridge too far. I had spent 10 years um, between Yale and Harvard, two places where doctoral students appear to be abjectly miserable to those looking at their lives from the outside in. The doctoral students that I met were so single-mindedly focused on whatever it was that they were studying. And single-mindedly focused is not my middle name. I love the way in which my current role gives me a chance to just change gears 50 times a day. And I've always known about myself that I'm not the kind of person who's going to be able to spend 18 hours alone in a library on a daily basis. So I figured other people can have the PhD route. As soon as I got out of that environment and moved from from my position at Harvard College and Memorial Church at Harvard um, into a new role as campus minister at a big state university, a big state non-flagship university, I started meeting people in PhD programs who were much more um, more, uh, multiple in their interests and their hopes for the future. So I I met a lot of doctoral students who weren't necessarily determined to be in a tenure track position, who wanted to find the enrichment that they could use no matter where their life took them, but didn't really see themselves as getting on a train to a tenure track Um, destination. So that really opened up some possibilities for me. And furthermore, when I was at Harvard Divinity School, I'd taken a couple of courses in the School of Education, and I knew that if I ever had the chance to study more, I would like to do more of that. So really, it was a PhD in education or nothing. It wasn't a PhD in this discipline or that discipline for me.
0: And when when you went that route and you were getting your PhD, were you thinking about becoming a faculty member or did you also have in the back of your mind that you might want to be a dean someday? I had actually been a dean briefly
1: toward the end of my time at Harvard. So my very first grown-up job coming out of Harvard Divinity School was serving as assistant dean of freshmen. Now, assistant dean of freshmen at Harvard, you can't even see that far down on the totem pole. It is the most junior of junior roles, and Harvard works its junior assistant deans very hard. This was back when we had pagers, and mine was just implanted in my hip. I had 580 first-year students, and I had to go with them if they ever had to go to the hospital or if they got arrested, and first-year students do a lot of both, and I loved it. I just loved it. I, I fed on the intensity. I really liked how in that setting, working with all first-year students, but from all different backgrounds, I wasn't just getting to know students from one religious background or interested in one set of, set of activities or subject matter. They were assigned to me by virtue of the building in which they lived. And so I got a taste for that kind of work, that administrative work. Before starting the PhD. But I will say that while I was in the PhD program, whenever somebody asked me, why are you doing this? What's your interest? My first answer was that I really could see myself as a university chaplain. And furthermore, I was already detecting that the glass ceiling for um, the glass ceiling for any senior administration in a university was getting lower and lower. And so I didn't want to see my opportunities limited by that one variable of not having a PhD. Nobody really knows what to make of a Master of Divinity. It's not even like a JD where people at least know what law school is. So I really was trying to, to um, uh, put myself in a better position so that I wouldn't need to um, say, I really shouldn't apply to that because I'm not gonna make it very far.
0: That's great. So could you tell us a little bit about the seminary, its, its history, how it came to be and sort of where it was b- before the integration with Yale?
1: Sure, David. Andover Seminary was founded in 1807 and Newton Seminary was founded in 1825. Not long after the founding of Newton, Yale Divinity School was founded. If you can believe it, Andover and Newton are both older, but all three of the schools emerged from a movement in New England that's now called the Second Great Awakening. So the Second Great Awakening was the very, very early days of the modern era's impact on the colonies and New England, where the intellectual approach to the Christian faith was starting to gain favor. And some Christian leaders during those years were really concerned about what that might mean. So in 1806 or so, Harvard, which at that point was just Harvard, it wasn't Harvard Divinity School or anything else, it was just plain old Harvard, was educating young men to be the religious leaders of New England and Harvard appointed to the most prestigious chair, a scholar who was really committed to a modern approach to Christianity, which is all well and good. I'm all in favor of modernity and all of that, but there was also a real concern that the um, spiritual and emotional dimensions of the faith were getting lost. So during the same time, um, there was a move in New England toward what we now call revivals, the more emotional and charismatic expression of the Christian faith. Those who were most concerned about Henry Ware getting this special chair at Harvard uh, really adhered to that more emotional and spiritual experience of the Christian faith, faith and reason, emotion and intellect, and it was actually two faculty members at Harvard inspired by the then president of Yale who decided to break off a faction from Harvard to create Andover Seminary. So the Andover Seminary first opening convocation was preached by the president of Yale. Now Yale's motto hmm. now is Lux at Veritas. Harvard, just Veritas. So that should tell you a little bit about the departures that we were talking about theologically. Newton Seminary was founded with its first two faculty members being graduates from Andover. Andover Seminary was in Andover, Massachusetts. Newton Seminary was in Newton, Massachusetts. Now, Andover Seminary was staffed by this breakaway faction from Harvard. One of them, one of the breakaway faculty members, was married to a Phillips. So you might now hear of Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. So Phillips Academy was the boys' school associated with the seminary. But over the first hundred years of Phillips Andover's existence, the seminary was the dominant force and the boys' school was playing second fiddle. But as those proportions started to shift, the faculty of Andover decided to try to merge back with Harvard again. So that Andover faculty went back to Cambridge, brought an endowment that was bigger than Harvard's endowment at that point, if you can believe this. I mean, now Harvard's, wow. endowment's, <laughs> yeah, Harvard endow- Harvard's endowment is now like a GDP of a country. But at the time, Andover's was bigger. And Andover brought its library as well. So actually at Harvard Divinity School, I used to study in Andover Library because Andover brought its books. But 25 years after that cohabitation resumed between Andover and Harvard, uh, two things happened. First, they hated each other. Second, the Supreme Judicial Court of the state of Massachusetts disallowed re-merger, and they disallowed re-merger because so much of that endowment, that big chunk of change, had been raised for Andover to get away from Harvard, not to move back in. So Andover Seminary actually closed and was closed for five years. Meanwhile, Newton, which, again, was in Newton, Massachusetts, and was... Um, Populating its faculty almost exclusively exclusively with Andover graduates was falling on hard times itself because it didn't have a financial model that could sustain it as it grew bigger. It was historically a Baptist school founded by um, missionaries from First Baptist Church in Boston, which to them um, seemed very far away at the time, I guess, on horseback. Uh, Downtown Boston to Newton was a bit of a trek. So they had students and they needed money. Andover had money, but it didn't have a school. So those turns of events were what led uh, one board member of each of the schools to say, "Mm, maybe we should do something together. So the schools formed a new affiliation in the late 1920s, cohabitated, again, living in sin, Again, um, until the 1970s, and then they officially merged to become Andover Newton Seminary. Now, by the time I joined the faculty in 2005, the writing was already on the wall that this business model was not going to work. And in fact, I joined the seminary when it was already in hot and heavy merger negotiations. But the school's pattern of going gets tough, let's move was quite liberating. And it opened up a lot of possibilities for
0: us. That's great. And um, could you say, when we, when we first spoke about this before the podcast, you'd mentioned that, you know, going back to the 19th century, so even well before the merger, that that Andover and Newton had been dealing with with a failed business model. So in, in particularly given the endowment you mentioned, in what sense was it was it failed and what were the challenges and how did it manage to survive for over a century with that? Well, the latter question
1: has an easy answer. Able to survive by the grace of God. Honestly, that's the only thing I can come up with. As for the um, structural problems with the business model, the structural problems of the seminary and the seminaries in the Christian tradition are emblematic of the structural problems with financing mainline Christian religion in America. So it's really impossible to separate out the churches from the seminaries. So the seminaries, particularly freestanding seminaries, are not connected with universities. They're connected with denominational bodies. Now Andover and Newton were two different denominational bodies, although they were theologically very, very similar both the Congregational Church, where Andover Andover found its home, and, and uh, the American Baptist tradition went through seismic changes throughout the whole history of the school. And it seemed like with every change, namely, um, Congregationalists joining forces to become the UCC, namely, um, conglomerating, and then Baptists splintering most notably the southern and the northern tiers of the baptist churches but there were lots of other splinterings as well those changes often diminished the school the um, denomination's margins when it came to having the flexibility to support affiliated entities so with the baptist church its financial support for seminaries diminished gradually over time for the united church of christ or the congregationalist branch There were some um, cutbacks, but the big shift happened really in the 80s when the denomination at a national level cut off funding to seminaries, saying that this really needs to get handled on the local level. Okay. The seminary business model was predicated on this idea that a church raises up a young man, and it was always a man. They raise up a young man. And they want him to be their representative in the world of the clergy. So they send him to seminary. They pay for his education. They pay for his room and board. And then after he graduates, they get him a job as an apprentice to another minister. And then eventually they bring him back either to that congregation or one just like it that model has not been in place since the Second World War. I mean, it's just so outdated at this point. The denomination tried to pick up the financial burden for a while, but then dropped it like a hot rock when it became apparent that it was just costing them too much. So what happens over time, we gradually shifted the burden onto the students themselves. We had students graduating with $20,000, $30,000, $20,000, $30,000, and $40,000 worth of debt in order to get a first job that was paying them twenty dollars or thirty dollars or $40,000 as their whole salary. They couldn't afford to do that. So the primary um, financial flaw, the, the um, structural flaw that, that um, really affected and Newton, but, but affects really all freestanding seminaries, is that question of whose theological education is this? Does it belong to the individual? Does it belong to the denomination? Does it belong to the local church? And that conversation, I don't think will ever take place because not one of those entities feels like they can afford this stuff.
0: And so obviously you have a very good understanding of the structural challenges and and the business model for seminaries as a whole, not just for Andover Newton. Given that what was it that led you to take on the role of dean? And, and when did that occur? So just talk us through that thought process.
1: Oh, um, I feel like um, I, I just can't even imagine a better job. <laughs> I'm, I really love, love, love my job. And it um, doesn't always love me back, but I love my job. So the way that I found my, myself dean at Andover Newton Um, seminary here at Yale was uh, a gradual moving up a certain kind of ladder, but moving up the ladder takes a different shape when you're in a place where the entire faculty feels sorry for administrators. Namely, I love administrative leadership, but my faculty colleagues thought I was crazy. So when I started at Andover Newton, I was, as I said, an assistant professor, tenure track role, but it was only a couple of years before I was appointed associate dean because I love this stuff. And fortunately I was in a really nurturing environment where people saw that I enjoy this particular kind of um, reasoning, this particular kind of service of trying to get those trains to run on time and to serve our students well and to create and then recreate an institution. So I was associate dean of academic affairs for two years. At that point, our academic dean retired. I applied for and got that job as um, vice president for academic affairs and, um, uh, and dean of the faculty at Andover Newton in 2011. So it was between t- 2005 and 2011 that I served exclusively in the faculty role with a kind of side portfolio as associate dean doing academic um, academic affairs work, the curriculum work. Starting in 2011, so I started as dean on January 1, and it was March of that year that the last of our long, bitter trail of merger negotiations fell apart. So I didn't fall them apart. I didn't cause them to fall apart. But I happened to really ascend to the deanship just at the time where we were realizing that something very dramatic was going to need to change. And that the path that we were on trying to find a peer to partner um, with whom to partner was just not going to work. Would I have taken the job if I had known that there would be three blissful months of thinking that the future was the future was quickly upon us? And maybe we'd be in disruption territory for six months rather than, oh, I don't know, since 2011 um yeah i would have said yes to the job because this is a very um i feel like this is a really worthy undertaking andover newton's mission is really 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 important and um somebody had to do
0: it so so can you tell us a little about that that string you mentioned of of failed merger (laughs) Mm -hmm. negotiations looking at peers Without necessarily, you know, you don't have to name specific sure. institutions, but, but what were, the, what were the, the kinds of things you were looking at and what were the reasons that, mm-hmm. you know, you were unable to do something like Andover and Newton had done together in, in coming together?
1: When you put the question that way, I think that the thought that I have of why couldn't it have come together like Andover and Newton came together? Well, Andover, New- Andover and Newton didn't come together particularly graciously. <laughs> they were, uh, they were cohabitating, but refusing to marry for two generations of students. And I suspect that if it had, if, if it hadn't been for the increasing sense of urgency, um, that we experienced in the late, um, in the, in the early 21st century, if they'd been under that kind of time pressure, it would have fallen apart years earlier. <laughs> when I first started at Andover Newton, the school was already in merger negotiations at that point with Bangor Seminary. Uh, later we entered publicly, I mean, this was very well-documented and all over the news. We, we um, added to that mix between Bangor and Andover Newton, Colgate, Rochester, Crozier, Divinity School. So Bangor, Maine, Rochester, New York, Andover Newton, were the first set of of partners to begin negotiations. Later on, we engaged in partnership negotiations in a slightly different um, attitude, a slightly different mentality with a Unitarian Universalist school called Meadville Lombard, which is in Chicago, and with Hebrew College, with whom we shared a campus in Newton, Massachusetts. So those, the first set of merger negotiations were, three partners that had virtually the same theological identity and mission. They were schools intended to educate clergy for locally governed progressive Christian congregations, period. Bangor, CRCDS, Andover Newton, no problem. The next set of merger negotiations were with schools that were very different from each other theologically. Unitarian Universalist, Jewish and Protestant Christian, with more of an emphasis on interfaith dialogue. Now, neither of those sets of negotiations eventuated in a partnership, although I wouldn't trade a second of it. I mean, I I would trade some of the, the anxiety, but not the actual lived experience, because I think we really needed to go through both sets of negotiations to sharpen our sense of identity of what we would save in the fire. If push came to shove, what is it about Andover Newton that's so essential to who we are that we couldn't put it on the table in the midst of a negotiation? So both sets of merger negotiations failed for the same reason. They failed because we couldn't get the legal and business dimensions of the agreement to work. There was no way around the fact that that if you can't get your attorney general to approve a merger, it's not gonna happen. And if one tries to depart from the purpose of donated money too dramatically, the charitable, um, the the, uh, public charities division of the attorney general's office is going to shut you down. If people give you money to do something You have to do that something or you have to give them their money back even if they're not even alive anymore. You just can't do whatever you want with donated money. So that was a hard one fight to make that logical argument that this direction is aligned missionally was way tougher than any of the partners expected. So for example, Bangor Seminary was really founded to educate people in the state of Maine. Wasn't about educating clergy, it was about educating people in the state of Maine. We didn't know that. I don't know if they knew that when we started this whole process. (laughs) When we tried to uh, partner with this school in Chicago, we thought, well, our charter, Andover's charter was older than God, So why don't we just bring Meadville Lombard in under our charter because we're grandparented in a way that protects us from a lot of scrutiny. Meadville Lombard wasn't interested in that. They didn't want to lose their charter. So these kinds of legal issues were very significant for us. Furthermore, we had these financial obstacles. And it's not necessarily that merger is expensive, it's that Merger doesn't necessarily bring you the efficiencies that a logical person might be led to expect. I called this in our our negotiation, uh, our our, um, thwarted negotiations, I called this the one of everything problem. Doesn't matter if your school is big or small. If you have independent charters, you have to have your own fill in the blank. President, CFO, advancement person, registrar you still need to have one of everything. So unless you absolutely and completely merge or really close one of the entities, the efficiencies just aren't there necessarily. And in many cases, your most ardent and devoted donors are very concerned with your identity as a school. And preserving identity is difficult in the midst of a merger. So That which scuttled the agreements tended to be some combination of legal issues, financial uh, fragility, where we were looking for efficiencies that never really saved us very much money. And um, the uh, loss of identity that you can bear if you can afford it for a few years while you rebuild, but where none of us really had that kind of runway ahead of our plane. We needed this to fly or not fly on Great. you know on day one.
0: And so you mentioned that just a few months after you took on the the, the VPAA role and 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 the at faculty dean, that those had stopped. But then it was clear you needed to do something else. So can right. you talk about this next stage for us? How did you go about determining what the strategic options were? How did you go about finding? Or eventual partner.
1: Well, certainly there were a couple of years after that last, um, the last um, merger death rattle <laughs> had sounded, where we really just tried to tighten up the ship. We really did, I think, good and important work of saying, okay, we need to regroup. What are the choices that we need to make to get to something closer to a balanced budget? something closer to um, a good uh, uh, faculty and student composition? Do we need to mothball a couple of buildings? Do we need to rent out some spaces to gain some revenue? So there was, I think, about a two-year period of time of just everybody calm down and let's kind of screw our heads back on and figure out what we want to do next that two year period coincided with the last two years of service of my pre-predecessor, who was a wonderful leader, who was the one who really articulated, we need to, he didn't use the word heal, but we need to kind of simmer down, uh, batten down the hatches and try to figure out where we're going next. When he retired the, his successor, also a wonderful leader, my predecessor, was hired with a very express mandate, you're going to have to help the school figure this out. Now, Martin Copenhaver is his name, and Martin was a trustee. So none of these ups and downs were a mystery to him. Uh, people asked him all the time, did you know what you were getting into? And he said, I voted on what we were getting into. Like he, he was very familiar. And he came in with a very clear mandate that within his first year, he was going to need to lead us through a strategic planning process and our board, which uh, very, very faithfully and understandably said, that strategic plan is going to have to have a sustainable business model built into it. So the, the process that unfolded during that year, that would have been 2014, 2015, was happening on two different levels. There was the outward strategic planning process, where we were gathering data from our constituents and basically making assertions about how we were going to do more and better, more, more, better, more, more, better, more, very broken theory of change built into it by the kinds of strategic plans that many of us have created or or seen underneath the surface. There were um, a series of alternatives that we are exploring and it wasn't like we were being secretive. We were honest about the fact that we need to have plans A through E Because just having a plan A makes perfect sense for a school that's not um, mortgaged up to its hilt, but we were mortgaged up to our hilt at that point. So I was much more engaged in the plans B through E than plan A at that point, because it was becoming increasingly clear that we were going to need to have a menu of options. So the other alternatives that we looked at included, and I'll name them in the order we considered them. Um, we had a big campus, 23 buildings, 17 acres in the highest cost real estate neighborhood in the Northeast, Newton, Massachusetts. It's crazy, crazy competitive. You buy a three bedroom ranch for 1.3 million and count count yourself lucky, that's the neighborhood we're in, which was horrible for us as we wanted to attract faculty, but it was great for our realtors. So option one, we sell... All of the campus, except for one or two buildings, like our chapel and our classroom building, keep those, sell the rest of it, fix those up and really focus on working with commuter students, which was a growing population and maybe online students. Okay, that was option one or B, I should say. (laughs) Option C, we um, sell the whole campus, move into a church and focus our educational programs on, um, on kind of action learning models that blended together the, um, the experiential work and the classroom work in what some would call a cooperative model. So that was option C. Option D, we affiliate with a university that's looking to create a, a, a special focused program on ministry for faith communities. And option D, we sell everything and give all of our money away. So as you know, we ended up going with option D. No, C. C? Yeah, C. We ended up going with option C, which was affiliating with the university. We affiliated with the university, but that was our third choice. And the reason we chose that option was that option B, which was... Option B, which is sell all but a postage stamp on our Newton campus and then renovate that postage stamp, we couldn't afford it. We would have spent all of the money we made selling the whole campus to fix up two buildings because our deferred maintenance was that bad. Furthermore, when you're selling all but a postage stamp on a campus, it actually does really decrease the value that you can um, expect from a sale, because nobody really wants to buy a whole campus except for that one little part. Nobody really wants to do that. So, option B, sell everything but the postage stamp. No. Option C, you're right, it was D. Um, so, option C, uh, move in with the church and create a cooperative program. I did actually a lot more research into that area, and we held on to that possibility for a longer time because we really loved the idea of partnering that actively with the church and saw some ways in which um, we'd be doing what Andover Newton likes to do, which is um, an innovative, creative curriculum that really focuses on faith community leadership. But what we learned as we started to really dive deeply into that question is that it's really not possible to create a cooperative curriculum that's also tuition dependent. Nobody wants to pay money to work, nobody. So we just couldn't see how we would make the financial model work. Even though we would have raised a lot of money by selling our campus, we couldn't imagine um, hanging our entire program on something that would rely on endowment proceeds That would be that um, to have like a ninety-five percent endowment dependent program was something that we felt was setting us up and possibly even our future students up for a very short-lived enterprise. The partner with the university that was D. You're right. That's what we did. E. Take all of our money, give it away. Nope not not allowed. It's not legal. Not legal. Lots of people asked us about that and said, "Hey, can't you give it to us?" People gave it to us. And our donors did not write regranting provisions into their gifts to us. They gave us money for professors and scholarships. That's it. We need to use it for professors and scholarships or nothing, or nothing. And a lot of schools end up doing nothing. So we went with the university route. And who knew that the partner that would be the right partner for us would be the one who's President had preached our opening convocation 213 years earlier. Can't make this stuff up.
0: So, so, so once you had settled on D as really the only viable legal path, how did you go about determining which university would be the best fit?
1: We didn't handle, I, I know of many schools that have um, handled the sequence of d- making that decision and then looking for partners just the way you described. We didn't. We had interest from Yale before we began this discernment. And here's why. As I said, Martin Copenhaver, my predecessor, was a board member before he became our president. He's also a member of the Dean's Advisory Council at Yale Divinity School and is a very cherished alum at Yale Divinity School. So he knew when he was a trustee that the um, That the, at this time, relatively new dean of Yale Divinity School, Greg Sterling, had among his priorities finding a partner to focus on education for locally governed congregations and also provide a counterbalance to a different embedded entity at Yale Divinity School, an embedded Episcopal school called Berkeley Divinity School. So Yale Divinity School has a successful history of having tradition-specific seminaries embedded within its quadrangle. Berkeley Divinity School has worked in collaboration with Yale Divinity School since 1971, where Berkeley educates students for their Episcopal and Anglican ministerial service. And Yale Divinity School provides the kind of big, big picture, um, holistic master of divinity curriculum. Over time, because Berkeley is an outstanding school and was attracting really strong candidates, the Episcopal presence on campus was starting to overshadow other faith traditions, including the school's founding tradition, which is mine, which is ours, the, the congregational way of being church. A lot of people thought, well, the best way to um, manage this this outsized influence would be to diminish Berkeley's position. And Greg Sterling wisely thought, well, that doesn't seem like a very good idea at all. Let's squelch the energy of a really successful unit here. No, let's find a partner. Let's find a counterbalancing effect. That was us. But we didn't know that yet. Greg Sterling didn't know that yet, but Martin Copenhaver had a pretty strong feeling that this could be a good match. Had things with Yale not worked out, in retrospect, and there certainly were moments where we wondered if we had we had a couple of really close calls in our merger negotiations, but had that not worked out, I think that we had, um, we had come to see the light. We had come to see that being able to focus really, um, really, uh, Uh, not narrowly, but um, intently on ministerial education for congregations. Once we tasted what it would be like to do that really well, but not a whole lot else, I think it would have been hard for us to go back. And I think we would have ended up trying to find a different partner who wanted to do basically the same kind of arrangement, which was allow us to be their embedded unit where we um, provide them a specialization that, then they don't need to um, populate with the bigger faculty and staff.
0: And given the resources that Yale has and also the the challenges that you've already enumerated well of doing mergers, Mm -hmm. why did this new dean think, I want to do the counterbalance through uh, uh, bringing in another partner as opposed to, I'll just expand and build my own to do
1: well, first of all, David, I mean, we are just delightful people to hang out with. And Greg Sterling just That's met it. us and he said, they're fun, man. They're good for a laugh and just delightful colleagues. So that obviously um, was the main reason. The second reason <laughs> is that um, depending on how much time you spend hanging out in, um, in divinity schools, you either do or don't know that a lot of university-based divinity schools air very very um air on the side extremely of the academic pursuit less so of the church and if you have a faculty that's very very academically minded chances are that wanting to dramatically expand your capacity to serve churches and congregations might be a bit of a tough sell so I know that had Greg Sterling gone to the YDS faculty and said that I want to dramatically expand our, our reach by creating this new department, say, he probably could have done it, but it would have taken years. And we had not only a reputation for educating clergy who were very effective and a reputation of being a place um, where people learned, people uh, people learned, the um, the more abstract and, and theoretical dimensions of theology while also learning ministerial practice. But we had a big dowry. We sold a big campus and we had an endowment to bring. Greg Sterling could not have found that within his own walls. He wouldn't have been able, even if Andover Newton and Newton had just you know, closed dead as a doornail, those donors weren't going to make their way to Yale. So strategically speaking, I would compare it with a corporation that wants to move into a new, um, a new arena, but doesn't have the technology that is required to move into that arena. So instead of developing the technology, they buy the company that delivers that technology. And it wasn't a buy and sell kind of arrangement. This was a mutually advantageous financial agreement by any measure, but I'm not sure that Greg Sterling within his own tenure could have achieved what we've been able to achieve together in less than four years.
0: That's great. Could you tell us, given, you know, the past failed efforts Uh and the decision that this was the route you wanted to go down, obviously you had a great inside card in in having a leader who was also tied to your partner. It sure helps. But how did you go about how did you go about that process? What was sort of the timeline? Who was involved to go from, okay, now we know we really want to get serious about working with YDS to, to actually getting to the point where you could make a public announcement?
1: Sure. We began our process with some informal conversations. Greg Sterling came to, the camp, to our campus in Newton. Uh, Martin Copenhaver and I came to Greg Sterling's office here in New Haven. And then in both settings, each of those respective presidents, at Yale we call them deans, at Andover Newton we call them presidents just because of the structure of the institution, each of them put together a small action team to start imagining what could this look like, what are the obstacles that we should anticipate and prepare to remove. So those action teams met either separately or together for a very intense period of time, I would say about seven months. And at the end of of that certain period of time, we realized we'd gotten far enough in the process to say that we need to do some really serious due diligence. Yale on us, us on this arrangement at Yale But once you begin that due diligence process, it's really hard to keep the lid on things. New England is like a small town. Everybody knows someone somewhere. And Boston and New Haven just aren't that far apart. So we didn't want our constituents to hear about this from anybody else. So before we entered into the the brass tax side, like really getting beyond vision and into logistics kind of planning, like... How many faculty members would we bring? How many students would transfer? How many credits could they bring? Could they bring credits? I mean, these kinds of of decisions, we decided that we needed to disclose to our community. So um, in November of 2015, we disclosed to our wider community that we were looking at options, um, options C and D, moving into a congregation We're moving in with Yale because those two were still alive at that point. All the rest of them were were dead on the side of the road somewhere behind us. Those are the two that were alive at that point. And it was very apparent to our community that, um, in in fact, um, they said, well, it's so obvious that you want to go with Yale. And my response to that would be, well, yeah, we want to go with Yale, but we don't get to control everything here. Yale might decide it doesn't want to go with us. So we do need to have some options here. But the main thing that was difficult about conveying that news was that both of those alternatives meant selling our beautiful campus, to which all of us felt really attached. So that was a real doozy. That November 2015 meeting um, was, I think, probably the most emotionally intense moment in the merger. From there, we really um, all had to just sharpen our pencils like crazy because they're just an enormous number of details that need to be arranged. Yale's attorneys sent us a request for documents. Just the request for documents document was five pages long. We're talking hundreds of of, um, pages of materials that were really understandable. And conversely, our trustees, our trustees are fiduciaries they made a promise to guard the mission of this school. So they weren't leaving a single stone unturned. So that process took, um, it actually didn't take as long as you'd think. The very first phase of the due diligence ran from November to the subsequent um, August. The following year, we had what we call the visiting year. So I moved here then, that was the summer of 2016. I, my husband Dan, my daughter Jacqueline moved to New Haven, and we were part of what we called an away team of um, four faculty members who were visiting scholars here for a year in New Haven, setting up the um, basically scaffolding for what we could build if the affiliation came to pass. We signed an agreement with Yale in the, in, on July 20th, 2017, that moved us from visiting status but we're still not in our final affiliation yet. We phased out the affiliation in different periods of time for which I'm quite grateful because man, uh, Martin Copenhaver used to always say deals like this have a very long tail and boy, he wasn't kidding. We still have a lot of business to complete in Massachusetts. And it's only after we complete that business in Massachusetts that the affiliation will be final. Right now, we are um, we are an embedded entity that still is an independent five hundred one c three, and we will rescind our five hundred one c three status and become fully part of Yale if all goes to plan, uh, January first, two thousand and
0: twenty three. Wow, that really is a, a long tail. Can if, I just ask about a few things in of that it. process and you we mentioned? Every minute of it. You mentioned that um, it was 2017 that you signed that formal agreement. Yes. yes. Um, before that point, from 2015 till there, were there other agreements? So sometimes in mergers you hear letter of intent and then an MOU. Did you have anything in writing with Yale before that point?
1: We did, we did. Our, our first co-writing projects with Yale um, were the really tough ones because they were the public disclosures. Yale, quite understandably, didn't want to um, get too public if it wasn't fairly sure that we were serious here, not that we were serious about our intent, but that we were viable, like that this partnership was viable. Writing press releases together was was torture for that reason because we wanted to reassure our communities that we weren't um, we weren't evaporating. And they wanted to, obviously and understandably, um, take things kind of slow. It <laughs> just wanted to be cautious. But by the time we sat down to write legal agreements, we had, um, we philosophically, I think we were in a very like-minded place. So phase one, phase two, and phase three were the language that we developed together. Phase one was the visiting year. And so the visiting year was a combination of experimentation with um, presence and programs of Andover Newton here at Yale Divinity School, that was coupled with um, with intense negotiations and due diligence. So that was the the uh, phase one, and we had a, a phase one agreement that was signed, sealed, and delivered. If we hadn't had that, I'm not sure if I would have moved to New Haven, (laughs) to be honest, and and, uh, taken that big of a, it would have felt, it felt risky anyway.
0: And was that sign sealed and delivered at the time you made the public announcement? You'd worked out what that would look like?
1: No, it was after. It was definitely after. The public announcement was as tentative as tentative gets. The phase one agreement was something that we were beginning to work on, Um, but everybody had to stomach a bit of risk. In order to get from the public announcement, I think that that we all wanted to see to what extent is our public going to um, there's we knew that there would be upset. But is it going to be the kind of upset that would um, that was like an implosion or was it the kind of upset where we needed to try to bring people along? By God's grace, we were really the latter category of having to bring people along. Our constituents knew that, I mean, why would we have been in and out of merger negotiations for so long if things were just going so perfectly and everything was so easy and fine? So we were, um, we were pleasantly surprised that people who were savvy about institutional living um, didn't fall off their chair, <laughs> that this was something that we were going to explore and pursue. And I think we all wanted to see how that would go before we, um, before we got too far ahead of ourselves. The um, uh, Next, um, that phase one agreement happened before we, um, before we designed this experiment here in New Haven. And it goes so far as to say how many faculty members will be part of it, And what's the work that needs to happen in between time? The big kind of the big green light that we needed was actually successfully selling our campus in Newton. I don't think Yale would have wanted to put anything in writing until that had been very much established as happening, not because we were going to have trouble finding a buyer, but because we really did need to be able to bring, um, to bring some financial strength to provide scholarships for our students and to um, support our programs. And as you, as a university president, surely know, selling property is just not that easy when charters are involved. There seems like there are as many dead skeletons in the closet as there is deferred maintenance. So we needed to get through that, I think, before we could feel like momentum could build. And that happened for us just as um, the away team was beginning to move for the visiting
0: year. Right. Well, obviously, if you're selling your campus, that that itself is a huge commitment. That you're going to need to move somewhere to continue. So, sure. how a, a delicate piece of this is obviously the lifeblood of of our institutions is being able to bring in new students. Sure. How did you manage through each of these stages, keeping the students you had and convincing new students to come when they may be coming to a different state, a different campus, and there's yeah. uncertainty over, you know, what it will look like by the time they're ready to graduate. How, how did you manage that piece of things?
1: Very, very Carefully, and very, and and really um, um, unusually slowly. So when I use that expression, a long tail. One of the reasons we had such a long tail is that we made a promise to teach our own students out. We didn't create any pressure or even incentive for them to relocate to New Haven because we weren't sure that we would be able to um, to accommodate them in New Haven. So. Andover Newton in Newton and Yale Divinity School have very similar degree programs, but very different educational models. Andover Newton was um, really customizable, whereas Yale Divinity School is much more standardized. Andover Newton had a lot of of, uh, people coming to study theology in midlife. Yale Divinity School skews much closer to the college years. So, we knew that a very small number of our students in Newton, Mass would even be interested or interested in or able to transfer to Yale. In the end, we had only one make the transfer, just one. Once we decided that we were going to be selling our campus, we ceased to admit new students right away and promised our students that we would extend the life of our degree programs three and a half years into the future. What that means is that all of our degrees could be achieved even for doctoral students at that point because we didn't have any degree programs that extended beyond three years, although many of our students took longer than three years to achieve them. At the time we made the announcement, this was again, November of 2015, I met with every student enrolled In our school, we had 225 students, so that was a lot of meetings. But I met with every student to make a plan for completion. The ones who were graduating that year really saw virtually no change. Those graduating the subsequent year saw little change. And those graduating the year after that, we really had to rely on consortium partners. But I was actually commuting between the two schools for two years. And our graduation rates went up. In part because our students felt the pressure, like okay, I'm either going to do this or I'm not going to do this. There's a clock ticking. There's a clock yes. ticking, and the person who maybe used to take one class at a time suddenly is saying, oh, I better ramp this up." But also, I think we, since we work with um, with adult learners who, in many cases, had a lot of um, competing commitments they were getting a lot more attention. Our students were getting a lot more attention around planning because we needed to know they had a plan. Now, a lot of these um, decisions went over like lead balloons. I had a lot of tearful students. I was, um, I was exhausted from all of the emotionally draining conversations that had to take place. And, um, two things I would know. One of them is that you would think that I would be really crushed under the weight of guilt for having made decisions that led to such um, uh, disappointment, inconvenience for students. But honestly, I think, David, that since I had been at the table for so many um, thwarted plans, I really knew at that point that it's either going to be this or it's going to be something else. We're going with the best conceivable option we're going with the best conceivable option for our school. And as sad as I am about it, trust me, this beats the alternatives. I know that for a fact. So so the guilt was actually more manageable than some people assumed. Um, And then the um, the second unexpected wrinkle was that just one year after this big announcement on the part of Andover Newton, Episcopal Divinity School, which is located in Cambridge, Massachusetts, decided to close its campus, partner with Union Seminary, which is another freestanding seminary in New York City. So leave Boston, move to New York. And they didn't have a teach-out at all. They closed. Bam. They worked with students to find transfer arrangements. And their student body was quite a bit smaller than ours at that time. But amazingly, complaints to me about how could you do this to us stopped just stopped because I think there was a, a sense that, I mean, we knew, we meaning the administrators and the faculty members um, that were working with students, we knew that we were far exceeding what our creditors or the AAUP were, um, were considering best practice. When everything from severance to teach out, we were, exceeding the minimum requirements, um, by a mile, but until they saw another school close, like overnight, I don't think our students totally grasped that what we were doing at Andover Newton was something that, that, um, was more than minimal was really not to say that EDS wasn't concerned about its Students, as I said, it's a very different school. It's much smaller. They were able to place people. They were fine, but it was a bit of a, I think a, a wake up call.
0: So, Sarah, you've given us a great explanation of the first phase of, of your three-phase agreement um, with Yale Divinity School. Could, could you say more detail about what phase two and phase three look like?
1: Sure, David. The, the easy part of the answer to that question is phase three, which is really not a phase at all. Phase three will be, we hope, the indefinite ongoing full affiliation between Andover Newton and Yale. And if all goes to plan during phase two, which I will describe in just a moment, then by the time we hit phase three, we will be really part of Yale University. We won't have an independent 501c3. Our board of trustees will be an advisory board and we'll still operate as a a wholly distinctive unit within Yale Divinity School but legally speaking, we won't be a separate entity. Phase two is where we're located right now. And in fact, we just passed the halfway mark of that five-year period and went through a pretty rigorous uh, self-study and evaluation of how the affiliation at phase two is looking for us. And here are the criteria that, that are guiding our work as we assess our effectiveness. When we left phase one and moved into phase two, which was the summer of of, um, 2017, we agreed that we would gradually close our Massachusetts entity and open our Connecticut entity, but both will exist throughout phase two, where we are now. That phase two included teaching out all of our Massachusetts students. At At this point that's done, but it wasn't back in 2017 included um, completing the sale of our campus, which is not yet complete, that's a very gradual process, and opening a new entity, including securing uh, a space, uh, a designated space in New Haven, here in our um, our Connecticut iteration. So the idea was that during phase two, we'd have two institutions in one, they're both Andover Newton, one gradually closing and one gradually opening. And here are the criteria by which we judged if we're doing what we set out to do. Number one, are we running our own educational program? Check. Andover Newton offers a diploma program in conjunction with the Yale Master of Divinity. And that's now up and running. We have 53 students. Um, As of this spring, we will have had 30 graduates. That program is very much in existence and all of our Massachusetts students have by some arrangement been taught out. We're no longer granting degrees as Andover Newton Theological School. Second criterion we need to have a recognizable identity within Yale We, we have a lot we heard a lot of anxiety from our uh, constituents about Yale wanting to swallow us up come up with as many images as you can think of for something eating something else. And I've heard it before. And the anxiety I don't think was as well-founded as people thought it was because Yale really wanted our distinctive focus on ministry and congregations. They really wanted us to counterbalance Berkeley Divinity School, their Episcopal embedded entity. So the idea of them trying to make our identity disappear Um, It just, it just did not seem logical to me. Honestly, Yale's a really big and powerful institution. If they were looking to feed on something, they'd be feeding on bigger fish than us. That was very clear to me. But because we understood the rationale behind the fear of identity loss, we wrote into this agreement that we need our own colors. We need our own logo and we need our own, um, we need a certain modicum of freedom to, be ourselves and out loud. So there have been moments when we've had to have tough conversations about Yale's not going in this direction. What would happen if Andover Newton did? Yale has a practice or a policy of not doing this type of activity that Andover Newton likes to do. So we have to have the tough talk, but that said, We felt very satisfied that Yale really wants us to be separate yet connected, distinctive yet integrated. That was what we hoped for. And the criterion we set up related to brand, brand identity. And the final criterion for success in phase two is that we believe that in partnership with Yale, we're using our money the way the agreement says we would. Now, I, again, wasn't too, too worried about Yale, um, Yale's administration uh, playing fast and loose with the money that Andover Newton was bringing, because Yale, like many universities, is absolutely obsessed with donor intent. They would never see it as worth their while to mess around with legally restricted charitable gifts. And it was good that we codified that we would use the money in the way we agreed to, because that was an area of our evaluation where we could say, check, we're in good shape. We monitor very carefully that scholarship money goes to scholarships, named chair money goes to named chairs. And as Andover Newton partners with Yale in raising money to increase scholarships, we've been able to show a really strong um, track record and a
0: clean bill of health. Great. Um, Can you explain? You had shared the need for the the first phase of phase two, in the sense of of your commitment to do as much as you could to teach out all of the students, some of whom still had three years left on their degree. But but why why the extension of that phase for these last few years? What is it about selling the old campus that is making that very protracted, as opposed to just say, you know, here's a buyer and you know, we're turning over the keys.
1: It's a, a great question, David. I'm really glad you asked it because I believe I've become a born again gradualist. I'm a pretty, um, I know my mind fairly quickly. I make decisions fast. I have a high, high rate of, um, I, I keep a very, very um, rapid pace. In my general work. So by me saying that, I think it was great that we phased this out. It's really not um, true to form for me. There were practical reasons as well as emotional reasons why taking this um, arrangement step by step made a lot of sense. The practical reason was that we had more than one offer on our campus in Massachusetts. It is a very, very appealing location. I know because we loved it. And it was a really, uh, it was a jewel that we weren't willing to part with um, with, for just anybody. And the uh, foundation, the family foundation that bought the campus, wanted to turn it into a school, wanted to keep on using it as a school, and demonstrated values that were very much aligned with our own. Obviously, our neighbors were absolutely thrilled that the place, that the space would continue to be used as a school. So that was good for our town gown relations. And the offer was much more generous than the other offers were as well. So, I mean, what don't we like about this? Well, what maybe somebody might not like is the fact that it couldn't come all at the same time. And that was a condition of the sale. In addition to the fact that the buyer was the one with the money and that was what the buyer wanted, uh, in addition to that, there were emotional benefits for us. As I said, there was anxiety that Andover Newton, small fish, um, Yale University, big fish. What if we sell the farm almost literally and, um, and find ourselves unhappy there? What are we going to do? Well, this gave us a chance to say, we're taking this step by step and we'll build in good evaluation every step along the way. And uh, that pace made sense for us bringing our constituents along. There are many cases where there were constituents who we didn't need their permission. We didn't even really need their buy-in, but we really care about our relationship. Ministry is all about relationships. So drastic is not our friend in those cases, ripping off the bandaid, who, who uses that as like a good image, ripping off a band-aid, It's terrible. It's bad for your skin. It's bad for your wound. And it hurts. It's bad for those little tiny hairs that get yanked out for no reason. So why would we do that to our constituents? We care about them. So taking things a little bit more slowly, giving us time to tell our story about how we're putting mission first here, mission ahead of many other um, dimensions of Andover Newton we cherish, mission even ahead of our identity, our distinct identity. It took some storytelling took a little bit of time. Finally, I would say that the, the work of becoming embedded at, here at Yale has itself um, been quite protracted. So let me give uh, one example. Our faculty who came here didn't go through a customary Yale process for how they were going to get um, appointed and advanced. We needed to come up with a process that made sense for their renewal and reappointment when renewal and reappointment time came. Yale didn't have a process like that. And processes like those, if you want them to be good processes, thoughtful processes, humane processes, you don't just come up with them in one meeting. It really does take a lot of conversation, assessment of values. And over Newton's got a stake in um, this faculty member. Yale has a stake in its faculty, and our faculty are one. We our faculty is not a separate faculty. We just finished the design of the process and our first review this year. Sign the papers in July of 2017, finish that process spring of 2021. And that was at a good clip. That was at a good clip. So again, that's just another example of the reasons why I've become a born again gradualist and feel like um, there's no reason to put arbitrary um, pressure on ourselves. And I think I'm starting to look at some partnership negotiations that fail simply because they've given themselves some arbitrary deadline, including two or three of Andover Newton's own attempts at merger, where we had this sense of either either uh, do it or don't do it. I can't stand the anxiety anymore. But I've I've read recently, and I've lived my whole life with the fact that. Um, Our ability to tolerate uncertainty is our capacity for innovation. There is no step in between. And I think that arbitrary deadlines are something that we use to soothe ourselves, to promise ourselves that we're not going to have to feel anxious forever. And guess what the universe is telling us? You're going to feel anxious forever
0: because change is the name of the game. Can I ask, obviously the, highlighted a number of the benefits of taking it gradually in terms of, it sounds like things are going great in phase two toward the ultimate phase three. But if for some reason in that process, there was an insurmountable obstacle, given you've sold the campus, you've you've moved to New Haven, is the exit option envisioned there that you would find a different university partner that would would take you in? Or have you even gotten to that, that point or had to think?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that we um, haven't thought about that eventuality, but what we really built into our evaluation process was a lot of flexibility. Because were the arrangement with Yale not to work, the question would be why? Why didn't it work? Because if that which caused it not to work was the university-ness, of the arrangement, then we shouldn't go with another university. If the issue was this particular university, then maybe, sure. But the reason we have kept the the door open for either Yale or Andover Newton to say this isn't what we thought it was, we wrote very careful criteria so that that decision could not be made unilaterally in some arbitrary or capricious fashion. So imagine Sarah Drummond gets hit by a bus, and Sarah Drummond's successor is just not really all that keen on this model. That should not be enough. It would really require criteria not being met that were agreed to from the get go. And again, the plans B, C, and D, uh, not to rehearse the same um, language from earlier in our interview. would depend so much on what wasn't going well. So I'm I'm uh, really passionate about evaluation, assessment, planning. And I think that the best thing that we've done is we've built into our evaluative processes such early triggers that we could identify them and work through them right away. And if it were an insurmountable object, then we have the nimbleness to say, let's learn from it
0: before we decide what we're going to do next. That's great. So uh, I'm curious, um, as you laid out this very carefully thought out three-phase process, were there any models out there, whether seminaries or other institutions, that you were able to look at and say, that seems to have worked well? Because you've mentioned the ones that didn't, including earlier ones you tried. So I, I'm just, you know, in coming up with this this template, I was wondering if you know, there was anything that had inspired that.
1: I can't imagine how different this whole process would have been if it hadn't been that Berkeley Divinity School is here. That's made a tremendous difference because it provides a mental model. On paper, the arrangements are different, but Berkeley Divinity School, the Episcopal School embedded here at Yale, is a sign of success. It is an inspiration that a combination of tradition-specific theological education and ecumenical university-based academic excellence can work together. And I think that the whole proposition would have felt really different if we didn't have a model like them. In fact, many people ask us the question, why not Harvard? Why not Harvard? Well, I mentioned previously, (laughs) um, We have a track record with Harvard. We've been married and divorced twice, and third time isn't always a charm, David. We did explore, could Harvard imagine an arrangement not unlike what Yale does with Berkeley because we're responsible leaders who were turning, uh, we we were turning over every card on the table. Harvard doesn't have a pattern of embedding entities. Therefore, we would have been running the risk of our constituents greatest fears coming to life, because in the absence of that track record, why would you think that Harvard would want to honor our identity, our names on their library, but that doesn't mean our programs are necessarily missionally aligned for them. And really, the question that you're asking, David, was the first one I asked of Barbara Brittingham, who at the time was the executive director of what was then called NEASC, our regional accreditor. Hey, Barbara, what are their models? Where are their models out there? Could you Could you give us some template to work from? And her advice was, Sarah, you're going to have to make it. And then we plan on using it a lot. And honestly, um, that was very flattering that she thought that much of us, but it really wasn't because she thought we were brilliant. It's because just chronologically speaking, nobody had started doing this yet. Now, since we've gone this route, Hebrew College, with whom we shared a campus, Mount Ida College, that was less than five miles away from us, have both gone in with some very strange bedfellows, and a lot has changed for them. But we were first... And that history of innovation is something actually of which we're very proud, but man, is it not the easy way.
0: And so in, just to summarize what you said, Berkeley was a great model in what you had in your mind for the end state, but the process of getting to yes. that end state, you really had to make up. There wasn't someone who had, yes. who had done those phases and you said, ah, that that seems to really address all these issues. And so so, so that that's great. Um, I'm
1: I sometimes think that the best contribution that I could make to higher education forever is just to take my to do lists from these times and scrawl out the things that were complete waste of time, because for every 10 or 15 inquiries, I'm not exaggerating for every 10 or 15 inquiries, there'd be that one conversation where I think, how was I supposed to have known that? I didn't even know you were accountable to that government agency. I've never heard of that person. But a lot of um, phone calls went out to people who really had no dog in this fight, but we were
0: trying to be thorough. So I'm curious, you've already mentioned a couple of things. Obviously there was the Berkeley model that you would, in phase three, you would continue to have an advisory board. There's the restrictions mm-hmm. around how the endowed funds would be used. Is there anything else in mm-hmm. the way you've put to the together the agreement that would safeguard those concerns, constituents, others would have had around your identity and not eventually being subsumed within Yale in mm-hmm. a way that means ANS is not recognizable in the same
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, two areas that we haven't talked about a great deal. One of them was finding a designated space because possession is nine-tenths of the law and feeling like we've got brick and mortar cover was very important for identity relocation. We'll move into our dedicated space starting July 1 of this year. And as much as I'm disappointed it's taken so long, it's not like we could have used it if we had had it earlier, because we've been completely remote for 14 months at this point. Um, furthermore, we have two faculty lines and a very set number of senior administrative staff lines that are built into our budget in a way that um, would not uh, be easily erased. So those two structural dimensions, faculty and space, in addition to um, to uh, the flexibility to have our academic program, the way in which our endowment is invested, which the entirety of our endowment is invested in the Yale endowment, restricted for use to Andover Newton. Um, those are some of the, the, um, the forever, those are some of the forever uh, uh, structures that will, I think, house and protect our identity. But really, as I said earlier, I, I just read an article by Judy Sizer who was our attorney in the midst of all of this. And is one um, wonderful at, person. At Ju- I think it, oh my yeah, gosh. No, I, I had
0: a chance so to Judy, talk with her and she seems to be the lawyer in the country. Who's done the most on these uh, partly because of her location in new England. Right. But.
1: Oh, and I really think that, that, um, that the location sure has helped, but I believe that Judy Sizer is really called deeply called to this work. Uh, she grew up on the campus of Andover, where her dad was the head of school. She was the um, general counsel at Brandeis while she was attending a church where I was on the ministry team, Memorial Church at Harvard. And uh, Judy um, is her, uh, her, up till recently, legal partner, Alan Rose, is one of the most respected higher ed lawyers in Boston. Um, and Judy left Brandeis to work with Alan, and I, I. She walks on the ground I worship, and she's just published a really wonderful article about how mission has to come ahead of everything, and identity and mission are not always the same thing. Identity is um, part of what Susan Beaumont, the uh, religion scholar Susan Beaumont, calls the communitas. Identity is ephemeral, it's not not defined by any one person, it's more um, a, a feeling, an attitude. I would describe the communitas of Andover Newton as our alums, far flung. The mission of our school is more narrow and not exactly the same thing. Sometimes we have to sacrifice part of our identity in order to continue to fulfill the mission just because the world has changed so much. Andover Newton does not need to be educating as many clergy as we did before because the churches are smaller. So that's fine. Andover Newton needs to educate for innovation and reinvention in a way that we didn't have to educate in the 50s and the 60s. So with that, we're putting our mission first And I thought Judy's um, hierarchicalizing of those two dimensions was brilliant. I'd never thought about it that way before, but it was very, very helpful because so often I get frustrated with those who cry of um, identity anxiety because I think to myself, like, what do you want us to do? Just die? we, We can either continue in our mission or die. And you'd rather we keep our identity while dead makes me angry to the point that I don't really process it very well. And that um, that uh, uh, heuristic that Judy suggested um, helped me through it
0: a little bit. So, so until you have the chance to, to, to write the book with your to-do lists, I, I wonder if you could share some of the those sort of unknown unknowns, the things you discovered, learned in the process, that you think would be most helpful so that people don't trip over those landmines themselves as, as they think about it?
1: The area where I feel like I learned the most that, um, that I have carried forward and shared with a lot of colleagues relates to the broad and general field of communications, so often, I hear about um, delicate arrangements that are going on between schools that fail over communications itself. And I have, I, I feel like I've learned a lot. I've gained a lot more respect over time for how important it is to keep ideas private to a point so that they can gestate and take some shape. And then when those ideas go public, how to phase who knows what and when in such a way that people don't lose trust. Today, at about 12.15, I'm going to be making an announcement to our Andover Newton community about a hire, a new hire. Very exciting. Can't wait to share the news. The way I sequenced who knew what when and the way we've designed this tell the entire world all exactly at once was something i learned from this process. Communicating is not the same as asking permission. Communicating is not the same as um, selling the idea to those who will never buy it. It's really about respect. They care. I care. We're not going to get into some contest over who cares more. If there's a good reason why something needs to stay private, because it's just not ready for the, the uh, intensity of scrutiny that we're on. I, I, the um, image I've used in the past is um, the combination of that steep learning curve and that powerful microscope. You need to figure out, like, at what point can we tolerate the microscope? We better be a little, little further along the learning curve before we go there. Um, but again, I, I feel like I've learned a lot about how um, important it is. When people love your school and you love your school to avoid a competitive mindset over if you only knew or if you really cared and instead just try to share with people as much as you can make yourself available to tell the story as much as you can and um, just buckle up because there's going to be some there's going to be some some uh, rough rough roads from time to time. So communications is everything we hired a communications consultant. I was strenuously opposed to doing so. And if I could go back in time, I would have said, Dave Garino of Melwood Global Communications, recommended to me by Judy Sizer. Come to my house, manage my life, if I had known how helpful it was going to be. Not because he said a lot that we couldn't have figured out, but because we with his help carved out the space and the time we needed to think all the way through our various constituent bodies. So again, that was a a really important learning for me. And then the second I've already alluded to, which was that I became a lot more appreciative of if something feels really overwhelming, see if you can chunk it down. See if I can break it down into more manageable pieces and do what can be done gradually, gradually. I I just recently was talking with a colleague at a different institution where um, the colleague kept using this expression, our financial model depends on us doing this now. And I asked him, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) What does that even mean? Like, of course that could be true, but if you put a program out there that fails because it wasn't ready, How's that going to work for your financial model? (laughs) Have you taken into consideration what that would look like if everybody associated with the program ends up getting fired because it got shot out of the water because you hadn't brought your constituents where they needed to be? I think that's pretty bad for your financial model, too. So, again, I think that sometimes we administrators um, don't feel like we have time to bring people along and to communicate and communicate. And I was one of those administrators. And some, some days I still am. If anybody who knows me is listening to this, they're going to be like, Oh, Sarah, you're so full of it. <laughs> <laughs> you're just always wanting to do everything tomorrow. But, uh, but even just an example of my work now, we at Internewton Newton are really excited to create a certificate program in um, congregation-based social justice leadership. I could put this on the ground for the fall. Give me a pencil. I could put this on the ground for the fall. No problem. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. We need to take all next year to get people excited and learn what this needs to become and build some momentum and do some really deep thinking about it. And again, that was something that I would say I learned from this, this kind of new approach to gradual. Where we didn't give ourselves a a, um, a a hard and fast end date by which everything would need to be done, because I feel like our work has been of higher quality and the anxiety has been much more manageable.
0: So, so given that you've you've been very frank in saying that for you some of this has been, you know, counter your natural tendencies. What what, yes. what do you think it it is that ha- sort of most prepared you to be able to. To make these adjustments, and and can you share, just just when in this process did you actually become the the president of the seminary and the dean of the new school at Yale, uh, and, and did that in that transition did that entail different capabilities, diff- different you know ways of mm-hmm. operating from yourself?
1: Mm-hmm. My research background, my scholarly background is in program planning and evaluation in religion and education. I have one research question and it's that same research question that has propelled me through lots of experiences and research projects. And I think it's a gift that keeps on giving. So here's the question. How do we move from a theological idea to a ministry program without ruining the idea, or creating a program that would never work, period. That's my research question. So as you can imagine, this has been my dream job, absolute dream job, because so much of the work has involved uh, planning new programs, evaluating them very carefully, and the job of the, the um, uh, what are you going to save in the fire what are the dimensions of the school that are so um is so arterial to its existence that they must come with it requires a certain amount of evaluation but it also requires a certain amount of practicality one cannot drag and drop a program from one context into another there's always reinvention that needs to take place so the actual the opportunity to move from Newton to New Haven, as much as it entailed a, a, no small amount of risk for myself and my family, and a huge amount of wear and tear on my mind and body as I was commuting between the two campuses for two years when we were running our teach out there and starting our program here, here being New Haven. Um, again, it was, it was like a, a professional dream come true that I just thank God I had the opportunity to be a part of it the um, the transition for me to move from the deanship to the presidency in Andover Newton language, from the associate deanship to the deanship in Yale language. Uh, well, there's a whole lot to it. <laughs> there is a whole lot to it. And in fact, it was a topic of conversation before I even relocated here, because one of my fears was as, um, as I'm sure anybody in higher ed who's listening to this will know, um, one does not want to move for a dead end job. And in many settings, the associate dean works at the pleasure of the dean. And I knew that my, at the time, president dean, Martin, uh, would be retiring at some point. And one of the tendencies that I have as a, a chronic overfunctioner is that it would be very easy for me to overfunction and have. Our board and Yale's dean decided to bring somebody in over me because I was making it look really easy. So we had some really good, Martin and I had some really good and healthy conversations about this. And I think that although um, although I did go through a process of application and review, um, it was not a competitive process when Martin retired. And I became the uh, I succeeded Martin Copenhaver in June of 2019. So uh, my first year was a bit of a doozy had an installation service in the fall that was just one of the happiest days of my life. And then, you know, five months later, here we go, COVID. <laughs> but that said, that said, um, the transition certainly brought out different kinds of needs in me, but their needs that um, their needs that are, are just, they they're very aligned with the expectations I had before So, for example, planning programs always involves pro forma budgets and um, narrative pro forma budgets and narrative are fundraising. So it wasn't completely foreign territory. I know how Like, it's not like I feel any more or less comfortable than I did before asking for money, but I believe in the mission. I know what it is we're trying to do. And those phone calls were not the biggest, steepest climb. I actually think that the the most complicated dimension of the work that I'm still getting used to, and I'll probably be getting used to it until the day I die, is that um, our governance structure has me reporting in two different directions. So I report to the dean of Yale Divinity School and to our board of trustees And even when they transition into being an advisory board, they're still fiduciaries, not over money, but over mission. They're still the guardians of the mission. And sometimes, rarely, but sometimes the two might not be on the same page. And those moments are are a challenge. Uh, But I know a little something about family systems theory, and I know a little something about uh, triangles and how to de-triangle them. Um, But I would say those have been the bigger challenges. Um, The second challenge is that our budget is like the Rosetta Stone. The budget, we have a budget for Massachusetts. We have a budget here in Connecticut and financial professionals on our board just burst into tears when they try to make sense of it. It is so complicated. Uh, so I, I feel like um, I'm maybe not any worse or better at that dimension of the job. Uh, getting stuck in the middle has been hard. That That's harder for me.
0: Sarah, th- this has been so great. I, I appreciate you being so generous with your time and, and the lessons you've learned through, through this process. I, I, Also wish you the very best of luck with finishing phase two and and entering phase three. But uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you and and wish you all the best.
1: Oh, well, David, this has been really an, an honor, a tremendous honor. I'm so respectful of your leadership and the work that you're doing at Chatham. And I feel very lucky to have been included in this conversation.
0: Thanks so much.